Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master ChatGPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. Today, we are talking about ways that we can utilize AI and data to accurately segment persona types and customers, along with ways to apply those findings to deliver more personalized experiences. And I have the great pleasure then of introducing product leader, David Tang. You like that? I just gave you a new title, David. Product leader, David Tang. Uh, I get to read your bio now. Are you ready to be embarrassed? It's quick. We'll make it painless. David has well over a decade of product management experiences specializing in data science and AI. He is most passionate about creating innovative products and experiences that solve customer problems and deliver value with a strong background in AI and machine learning, SaaS product strategy and customer journey touch points. David works to deliver impact and user-centric product that delights david the delight is all ours today welcome <laughs> how are you i'm doing great thanks eddie are you ready to uh make us all smarter on this topic i hope so <laughs> all right i hand the powerpoint to you my friend do it all right thank you so much that was an amazing intro i've uh, watched some of the other uh, webinars that eddie has kind of uh, hosted and I'm almost always amazed by how he kind of bring to life uh, other people's kind of background. So thank you for that amazing intro again. Um, so yeah, let's get started. Um, I just want to add a little bit more uh, about myself. Um, I think Eddie did a great job sharing some of my background. I'm David and I'm a product manager with a passion for storytelling uh, around data. Uh, that just basically means that I like numbers and specifically how numbers can help me convince people around me to work on solving interesting problems. Um, so uh, Eddie mentioned I have you know uh, over 10 years of experience. Um, they actually span across like marketing, consulting, data science, and product. Uh, so a very interesting mix of varieties. You may be able to tell that I grew up in Chicago based on the schools that I attend. Um, I study economics in undergrad and got my MBA from Kellogg. Now I live in San Jose uh, with my wife, uh, our cute two-year-old daughter, and an equally energetic corgi. Um, and before I go into the presentation, I just also want to share my favorite TV show, um, which is Devil's Plan. It came out quite recently on Netflix. It's a, a Korean um, reality game show that has a lot of numbers, a lot of brain teasers. Um, they bring in a lot of smart people um, and there's drama, and there's intrigue, and there's teamwork. Uh, it's, it's very fun to watch. I promise I didn't get sponsored by Netflix or anything. It's just a really fun show. Um, so that being said, that's actually 
start with uh, some numbers today. So according to a 2021 study by McKinsey, 71% of consumers expect companies to deliver personalized interactions. If we look at the figure to the right, we can also see that personalization has great influence over a lot of customers' decision to purchase, repurchase, and recommend to other people around them. This may not be a big surprise to many of you. Your favorite products and apps are probably already infused with um, a lot of personalization. Uh, it is a new norm, almost a necessity today. And we are increasingly expecting uh, as consumers from products that we interact with from the get-go to have those personalization. And personalized experiences really demonstrate um, that a company that we interact with values its customers and is committed to meeting their individual needs. This is important because it helps foster brand stickiness as well as customer loyalty so that we continue to use their product on an ongoing basis and most often also pay for those uh, services. And personalization isn't possible uh, without knowledge about customers. And that knowledge really lies in customer data, which is something that we will spend some time talking about today. So uh, before we dive into the topic, I also like to just take a quick moment to lay out some definitions uh, for a couple of terms that I'll be using throughout the presentation. These are my interpretation of these terms within the context of the topic. There are probably other definitions that you know, are also equally valid. Uh, first is customer segments. Uh, customer segment is a group of customers who share similar characteristics, behaviors, or needs. Uh, I'll go into a few more examples uh, later on. Persona um, is a fictional representation of an ideal customer based on real data and insights. Um, customer segments and persona are actually very closely related. Uh, you can think of customer segments as the raw ingredients or the building blocks for a persona. You know, as a product manager, one of my jobs is to articulate uh, the ideal customer profile to my team. Um, and Persona is a powerful tool to really facilitate that alignment within my organization. So everyone I work with is clear about who the customers are and what do they need. In, my, in many organizations, uh, this is sometimes also a joint effort between product management and product marketing teams. Uh, below those two terms, we have AI and machine learning. Um, and AI machine learning is really just a collection of techniques to help identify and also make predictions on the patterns in customer behavior and preferences. And some of that fuel comes from uh, data uh, that you know, form customer segments. Personalization is really a particular outcome uh, of creating unique and relevant experience for customers. And techniques like AI machine learning can really help in driving some of that personalization. Okay, so let's keep, put the definition aside and keep rolling. So as mentioned earlier, customer segments are the building blocks for understanding your customers. There are uh, many different ways to actually think about customer segments. Here, what I, what I have here are four most common ways. Uh, one is behavior. 
Behavior segments focus on a customer's direct interaction with a product. They're very commonplace today. Um, and largely due to the fact that uh, it's quite easy for data about behavior, uh, uh, sorry, behavior data are collected you know, through uh, in-product analytics. Demographic segments um, contain facts about the customers themselves. Um, not all of them are relevant for every task at hand, uh, but some of them uh, may also not be used uh, for personalization due to privacy laws. So it's very important to consult your legal and privacy teams before collecting or use these data. Geographic segments are all about where the customers are. This is relevant for um, uh, having functionality or uh, capability around language or locale. Um, and it's even more so if the product itself is very dependent on location data, such as Uber or Yelp. Psychographic segments contain sort of an abstraction of a lot of customers' um, various attributes, things like attitudes, goals, interests, personalities, values. The list can go on and on. These data are sometimes pretty hard to collect, and they often rely on surveys, interviews, or even collecting that through third-party vendors. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, you often actually see persona arch, uh, archetypes consists of several combination of these segments that kind of present a cohesive story on ideal customer type. But the segments and sort of the data that go into these segments are the building blocks. Um, one important thing to know um, is that customer segments won't change over time because customers themselves, like you and I, we also evolve and we move from one segment to another. So it's important to reevaluate uh, customer segments for your product um, from time to time to stay relevant in today's competitive landscape. So let's actually do a quick exercise. Um, everybody can see the, the screen in front of me with a lot of the Adobe product logos. So how many of these Adobe product can folks identify from the list? We'll take maybe like five seconds. People can just type in in the chat box if they want. And maybe Eddie can... Tell David, you know, I just, I, uh, I am a graphic designer. I'm an Adobe guy. And I saw this slide in your deck and I did not do as well as I thought I was going to do. <laughs> Somebody typed seven in the chat. I see. Good. That is very good. Mostly threes. Okay. Couple twos, couple zeros. There's a five. Okay. That, that, that's pretty good. Uh, that's actually better than what I expect. Um, I think when I first joined Adobe, I was just as cool as most people here. Uh, uh, Jared, I... Jared identified negative three. I just want to poor, poor Jared. <laughs> we can uh, sympathize with that. <laughs> so what's funny is this is not even the full list. If you actually visit Adobe's full catalog, I have a link down below. You can actually find more than 90 products, uh, almost as many as there are elements in the periodic table. And some people actually said this is the kind of Adobe periodic table. Um, so, you know, how would you know which of these product is the right one for you just by looking at this? Even if I give you the product's names uh, and maybe a short description, does that help? Um, the good news is that's not how Adobe or most companies sell their product. They don't just blast you with a bunch of logos and product names, or I hope uh, that's not the case for some companies. Um, let's take a look at this example, um, which gives us a little tease of what some segments might be. 
So if you go to Adobe's product page today, you can actually see some examples of segments at play. Uh, so on the very top of that screenshot uh, in the green dotted line, we have tabs that break out uh, some of our products uh, by individuals, business, student teachers, school and universities. So this makes sense because these customer groups uh, likely have different goals, different product behaviors. They can kind of self-select and pick the right tab and, and go from there. On the uh, left um, kind of map, you can uh, see some product categories, um, you know, photo, graphic design, video, uh, and, and others. This also makes sense because they align closely to distinct creative professions or creative mediums. Uh, they also represent, uh, they, they could represent aspirational persona, uh, if you will, for those who wish to grow their skills in any of these categories. So th this is a pretty good start, right? It can kind of help customers find which product might be a good fit, but this is just better organization. It's actually not personalization. The customers still need to do the legwork to find the right product for themselves. So how can we do a better job? Uh, here's another example. Um, if I uh, visit adobe.com and uh, while logged in to my account, this is actually the page I see today. Uh, you can see that Adobe welcomes me back, uses my name, uh, and personalizes my experience in two other ways. One, it gives me a direct link to launch Acrobat Online, uh, which is actually included in my pay Acrobat plan. Two, it has a little kind of a gray box that's, that stands out. It offers me an upgrade option to their Creative Cloud All Apps, which is their all-inclusive bundle. If I uh, log out of my account uh, or visit this particular homepage, uh, actually it's just, just adobe.com, uh, in incognito mode, I won't see this at all. And instead, I will see a more generic homepage that probably we all will see if we log into Adobe uh, without logging in. Um, so under the hood, I know that my personal my experience has been personalized and it's driven by Adobe's knowledge about my uh, about me, my persona, and a lot of data that powers um, that personalization. Uh, so this is actually just scratching the surface. Um, more advanced personalization actually can only be achieved through more advanced techniques like AI and machine learning. So let's shift gear and talk about some of that. Uh, uh, before we dive in, um, uh, just a quick overview uh, for those who may not be familiar with AI and machine learning, um, just a quick, a few quick terms. So AI is, uh, essentially a simulation of human intelligence in machines, allowing them to think and learn like us. Uh, machine learning is a subset of that, uh, where uh, it's an algorithm learning from patterns in the data and improving improved tasks um, without explicit programming. Machine learning is well-established in a lot of business applications today already, um, and especially when it comes to personalization engines. Deep learning is even a further subset of machine learning, uh, it utilizes deep neural networks with multiple layers that process data and make complex decisions. So large language models such as ChatGPT falls into this category. Um, so let's talk through a few examples of how this applies to personalization. Uh, the first example I wanna share is the propensity to churn. Uh, if, you're a, uh, if you have grumpy customers, they will eventually stop paying. So retention is a very common challenge for uh, a lot of the subscription-based product and services out there today. 
uh, we often call it the leaky bucket problem because you have a bucket, you keep pouring water, but then there's a hole that you know water keeps leaking. The challenge is that by the time a customer is grumpy enough to cancel, it may already be too late uh, for the company to address their concerns um, and the reasons uh, that they're canceling. Therefore, the, the goal of a propensity to churn model is to identify persona types most at risk of churning and mitigating that risk early on so they don't even get to that point. Uh, so some model input examples can consist of uh, a lot of customer, customer behavior data that, that, that's collected through the products they use. Things like uh, product usage frequency, um, how often they abandon a project if they you know, start the actual software, but they actually don't actually complete a project. Time since last visited, um, uh, if they visited the cancellation page, the commerce page in their account uh, where they can cancel, if they submitted some support tickets um, because some issues came up. So this is not an exhaustive list, uh, but just kind of give you a taste of what might go into a propensity to churn model. Um, and example output of the model will consist of customer ID um, that you see on the left, uh, and it's cross-counting churn score. So the churn score here represents a probability that the customer might churn. It doesn't mean that it will absolutely churn, just a probability based on shared patterns of behaviors uh, of past customers that actually churn. Um, so in this example, the first two customers would be most likely our top candidate to flag for follow-up action. Um, so some outcomes, some examples of preventative measures uh, would include launching tailored educational campaign to help these customers better use the product, conduct a proactive customer outreach to your most valuable VIP customers, and then also creating some incentives uh, that perhaps can increase engagement or usage of the product. As you can imagine, compared to intervening when a grumpy customer is trying to cancel, this is going to be more effective in reducing that overall churn and retaining the customer in the long run. Now, the other side of the coin uh, is equally uh, valid as an example. What if we have customers who are very happy using our product? Uh, there's actually some opportunities there. there may be good, uh, they may be good fit for some of our other products. Uh, or they may be interested in additional features, capabilities, uh, if we sell some add-ons that can add those capabilities. This is where the propensity to buy can really help us. So the goal of a propensity to buy model is to identify persona types most likely to spend more, whether it's to purchase additional products or upgrade to a more expensive bundle, like the example you saw earlier on my uh, logged-in homepage. Uh, some, some data inputs in this case uh, might include usage frequency, uh, project completion rate, most used product, most used features, recent visit uh, to the product page. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, and example outputs of this model would consist of um, the, the customer ID and the cross-funding buy or upgrade score for every potential product uh, that, that might potentially be recommended. Um, and these score really represent the probability that these customers, customers might purchase or upgrade 
based on all the shared patterns of behaviors of past customers that actually did that. So um, in this example, our first customer, uh, first two customers uh, in the list are good candidates for uh, product X. And both first and third uh, customers are good candidates for upgrading uh, to product Y. Um, some of the outcomes that we would kind of drive with this model would include a personalized email campaign to promote the next product that the customer uh, might want to try or buy, uh, in product notifications uh, to kind of let them know there are some opportunity to upgrade to a plan that has more capability. It could actually even help uh, the company prioritize their customer support resource to focus on these uh, you know, high value customers that have the uh, potential opportunity to purchase more down the road. Um, so these more targeted approach means customers are more likely to respond to these tailored recommendations, thus increasing their lifetime value for companies such as Adobe. I got one more example. Um, so in this one, uh, I actually picked my favorite app, uh, Duolingo. So for those of you who may uh, not be familiar with Duolingo, it's an app that helps you learn a new language. Um, so I'm currently using it to learn Japanese. Duolingo makes learning new languages uh, very fun. Uh, they have a lot of gamification uh, elements in there. It also leverages machine learning personalization uh, for what's called adaptive learning. What that means is each learner uh, gets a unique and personalized curriculum that adapts and evolves with the learner. The goal of adaptive learning is to identify learners who are struggling uh, with the material um, and help them succeed in grasping the concept in their unique way. Uh, if you check out their blog, they actually have a very extensive uh, kind of uh, data science and research blog that talks about a lot of their methodologies. Um, they share some examples of data inputs uh, in that blog. Things like um, the lesson completion rate, uh, how much error the learner made, uh, the amount of time they spend in the app, what's the most recent uh, topic that they learn, uh, what's the difficulty level of those lessons, and what's the learner level in terms of the overall language progression. Again, this is probably not an exhaustive list that they work with as well. Um, some of the outcome in this case include adjusting the content difficulty as the learner progress. Um, and then offering opportunities to correct past mistakes. Um, they also introduce tough vocabularies, uh, sometimes in new contexts to make it a little bit easier. Uh, sometimes they even ask some silly scenarios to kind of give you a chuckle. So they better engage you uh, with the learning experience. So you will stick around to try it again. So I actually experience, I personally experience uh, 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 almost all of these personalized uh, outcomes that I just described above. And they actually, they work really well in keeping me engaged compared to other language learning apps that I've used in the past. Uh, and I, in this case, uh, I also promised Duolingo did not sponsor me. I just love using their product. And as a product manager, uh, I just I admire how effective uh, products are uh, tailored to my learning through personalization. Uh, if any of you listening have your favorite app that you use frequently, I think it's it's awesome to take a closer look at the various ways that particular app personalizes to your experience. It's kind of fun exercise to do. 
um, and something you can often learn quite a bit about. All right. So we went through a few examples of machine learning uh, model. Um, let's now look at some recipes for how we can build one. Uh, so there are six steps. Um, I'm kind of going through them pretty quickly. Uh, I think any of these could be a webinar of its own. Um, so uh, first is just defining very clearly what you aim to achieve with personalization. Uh, and personalization may not be the only goal you're trying to achieve with machine learning model. Uh, it's just the one in the context of this topic we're, we're going through. Um, you know, whether it's reducing churn, improving engagement, work closely with your stakeholders. So you align the goal and the scope of the project early on. Uh, next is gathering relevant data from different sources that you collect um, and integrating that in a more unified way. This is where you work very closely with your data science and data engineer counterparts to fully understand are there gaps or limitations in the data that you collect. Making sure that data quality is uh, you know, paramount in this case. Removing any duplicates, take care of the missing values, normalizing the data uh, for overall consistency. Next, you, uh, next, this is mostly handled by the data science and data engineering team. Right? They train and select models uh, based on the historical data using various techniques uh, like cross-validation to ensure robustness. And then they will analyze model performance with you uh, and then come up with some strategies to fine tune it based on various uh, parameters for, uh, for better results. Um, after that, you would uh, integrate this model into whatever platform or product uh, that would be exposed to the end customer and user, ensuring that you know, all the work that you put in can actually uh, can be you know, used efficiently um, on, the, on the other side and can actually be uh, by driving the specific results you're looking for. Um, it's important to continuously monitor uh, afterwards the performance um, in production and potentially retraining it periodically with new data. Uh, so if you look at the right column, you can, you can probably see that the bulk of the time you're gonna be spending is actually around collecting and cleaning data. That's because if there's any issues there, it sort of invalidates a lot of the step that happened after. So this is the most critical step to, to, do, to do right and to spend the most of the time. Okay, so now that you have a machine learning model, how do you actually measure its performance, um, both in its inception as well as over time? Um, so, this, this deck, uh, so this slide has, has a lot of content and I think this could be a webinar or two of its own as well. Uh, in this case, I will, uh, you know, I will just cover it in a high level. Um, basically, I wanna let you all know from a product manager perspective, what's kind of important to understand when you're working with your data science and data engineering teams uh, evaluating the model success. Uh, the real big key takeaway here, um, if there's one thing you take away from this slide is that um, high, a, a high number, a high score in any of these metrics generally indicates good performance, but the choice of which metric to prioritize actually depends on the specific goals and the requirements of your models, applications, and, uh, and, and uh, end result. Um, so kind of give you an example. If you look at accuracy, this is a, sort of a good high-level catch-all KPI 
um, that's really well suited for recommendation system. Sentium analysis, image recognition, uh, but there's a flaw, uh, as many of these KPIs have some pros and, and cons. The flaw is if your training data is not well balanced and there's more of certain type of data that could potentially skew um, your training data, it actually invalidates or reduce the true performance of your predictions. Um, precision recall and F1 score can sometimes be more targeted to whatever bias that actually makes sense for your end application, say spam filters, search engine, or fraud detections. Those cases, you wanna minimize the false positives. So you actually want some of, that, um, some of those uh, biases for false positive to exist in your model, therefore producing a higher quality product. Um, so there are specific instances where position will be preferred over recall, where it actually um, uh, it minimizes uh, false negatives, uh, which is good applications for cybersecurity detection, uh, emergency response, uh, parental or content control, for example. Uh, and the F1 score is kind of a balance between position and recall. Um, it's actually a great replacement uh, or sort of addition to uh, accuracy. Um, when there is an unbalanced class distribution in training data. Again, there is no single KPI that should be the sole focus uh, when you work on evaluating your model. Uh, it's important to understand the goal, the application, and maybe several KPIs that can help you fairly evaluate the performance over time. Okay, before I wrap up, I just wanna leave everyone here six tips. Uh, to improve their overall success in building a strong data-driven persona and effective personalization engine. The number one priority, I think I mentioned this earlier, is to have a very clear business goal. Uh, and that business goal should align closely with the customer value and impact you're trying to drive. Whether it's uh, help the customer activate, use the product for the first time, help them engage with the product uh, you know, on an ongoing basis, how retain them for the long term. It's very important to set that up front uh, and make sure everyone's aware that's what you do. Next, um, you want to implement robust monitoring system to track the performance over time. We talk about a few KPIs that you know kind of has its pros and cons. Uh, it's important to know that uh, machine learning models can degrade over time uh, if you don't have the latest data. Um, or, you know, just due to the fact that customer segments also change and evolve over time. So it may become less effective. So scheduling regular retraining of the models, look at what other new relevant customer data you could collect and incorporate, or even remove obsolete data that are less of a predictor of the behavior that you uh, want to uh, drive, just to ensure that they all adapt uh, to the evolving user behavior and preferences um, that you're trying to understand and uh, you're trying to kind of build personalization around. Uh, next, uh, you want to define clear threshold for action. Um, so we saw in a few examples, you know, there's some probability 79%, 81%. What is that percentage point that makes sense for us to take a specific action? Um, so defining that early on is important. Uh, but also, you want to evaluate the model performance as well, and then see you know, just how big 
is your customer size that falls into specific thresholds. Um, depending on the action you're trying to drive, some action may be um, less risky, such as sending an email. Uh, you may not want to send it to a lot of people. So looking at the overall customer size of those segments as determined by the threshold, say, if everyone above 80% uh, of that score would get an email, is that the right amount of people that you want to be contacting and personalizing that experience? Um, so you know, work with your counterparts um, that this, these particular applications will impact and help them to uh, make sure they have a voice in that as well. Um, that would be one important um, ingredient for success. Uh, next is uh, you wanna communicate to the users themselves um, how personalization works. And sometimes give them some options, uh, potential option to opt out of them. Uh, this is particularly true for a lot more sensitive uh, kind of applications um, that you want to give the user the control over their data. And if they do not want personalization, um, you want to be able to give them that level of control. Some jurisdiction actually require you to do that. So you don't have a choice. Uh, lastly, um, it's to ensure that your personalization engine adheres to um, the data privacy laws and user privacy standards. So absolutely work closely with your legal and compliance counterparts to make sure that is uh, that you that you're aware of uh, what those boundaries are, and that those teams are every step of the way um, also fully clear of what uh, your potential machine learning model and personalization engine is trying to accomplish and what goes into uh, those models. Okay, uh, and that that's a wrap for me. I, I promise Eddie that I will hand it back. Um, to him and then uh, give some time for Q&A. And you did. You weren't greedy. Awesome. Uh, David, we have got some questions. Uh, so I hope you've got your, uh, your PR representative handy because we're going to grill you, man. Are you ready for this? Let's go. We'll be nice. We'll be nice. Um, I definitely want to start with, oh, uh, folks, uh, people are popping their questions over into the Q&A tab. That is the way to do it. So if you've got a question on the tip of your tongue that you'd like me to toss over to David, stick it there in the Q&A panel and uh, I will give it to him. Uh, David, I want to start with this one from Jin to represent all those folks uh, for whom this is a totally new world, right? Uh, Jin said, I am totally new to this stuff. How are we supposed to create these models? Is there some sort of software or plugin we can use? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm gonna, I, I wanna start, cause I remember in your presentation, there was a moment when you said, at this point, you would talk to your data scientists, right? You said that at one point, uh, which is obviously gonna be part of this answer. But for, for those of us that maybe don't have data scientists, I don't have a team of data scientists that I can call on at any time. Can I still take advantage of this advancement in technology? Mm. Is there software that I can play with as a newbie that won't get me into trouble, but that might still benefit my work in product, David? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, understand a lot of businesses and, and companies may not have adequate resource to help the team get start with you know, building a personalization engine, let alone a lot of the underlying uh, requirements to get started. Um, I, I think for small, medium businesses, there are absolutely uh, tons of vendors that 
they serve kind of two kind of a two two type of services. One, they help you monitor and capture a lot of in-product analytics, and two, they're able to serve insights on hey, here's where the opportunities are based on the insights that you collect. And third, they may have the ability for you to inject elements of personalizations in your product uh, in a lot of various uh, customer touch points. So one that I see very common are uh, kind of onboarding experiences. There are so many meetups. I actually can't think of one on the top of my head. There are, there are a lot out there as you just Google around that uh, helps you layer on top an onboarding experience within your product um, uh, and kind of help you segment what kind of customer they might be so they get a personalized onboarding experience. Um, so I think that the key here is to understand what are, what are the goals you want to focus, first of all, uh, going back to my kind of tips, mm-hmm. is and then search for particular um, product and services that are adapt in addressing those particular uh, problems that you're trying to solve. They, of course, if you're working with them, kind of injecting that into your product, probably need you to integrate them into your existing product. So there would be some kind of engineer work involved for you to bring those two pieces together. Some products are a little bit easier to integrate than others. Um, so it kind of really depends on how much personalization, how much depth, and how much data you would expose um, your own product to these vendors. Uh, but they are most likely going to want to win your business and they're mostly going to well explain to you what are the steps that will require for you to integrate with their platform and to kind of drive the outcome you're looking for. So it depends on the situation. It depends on how comfortable you're willing to kind of, uh, you know, ex- not export, but kind of expose some of your customer data and experience to these vendors, then they will help you with some of those specific touch points that can then be used for personalization. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, in short, uh, this is a new technology. It is a big technology, and we are going to need to partner with some specialists to get the most use out of it. Is that the case? Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it, it should not be a this. This is never a one man uh, kind of. It's not a one man workshop. Uh, you absolutely want to involve some other parties, unless you're like a solopreneur and you don't have anyone else to work directly with. Um, then you can kind of uh, identify some potentially vendors that are well integrated into your entire kind of product development uh, life cycle. Maybe you're already partnered with them and they may have some capability that already exists um, that you can kind of expose to uh, your customers. Yeah. Uh, You reminded me as you were answering that one uh, of a follow-up question about uh, the segmentation and targeting. During product development, what... What methodology are you using to figure out who to segment or or who to target? Uh, you know, even before you've decided um, uh, what what your features are going to be, are you thinking about what is the data that we have? What can we learn from that? Okay, can we build a feature that addresses that data? Is that the order of operations? Or instead, are you going to the market looking for a problem that you can solve? And then, and then going back to the data and saying, how can I utilize this data to segment further down? What, what's, the, what's the methodology? What's the order of operations that's, that's most recommended there? Yeah, I actually have a slide that I, that I did not share. 
so it's, it's in the appendix. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. It's, it's in the appendix. Um, and basically, it's saying data is valuable and important every step of the way in your product development lifecycle, uh, whether it's building new features for an existing product or building brand new products. Um, the amount of data and sort of the uh, levels of uh, the so level of detail of data you can actually acquire will vary depending on which um, which which area you are uh, in your product development uh, kind of journey. But I think ultimately you you're building a product to solve customer pain points. So you're going to have to collect some information on what are those pain points that you're trying to solve. You may not actually have something that customer can interact with to collect it firsthand. So you would need secondhand data you know, uh, qualitative data. But once you have something that your customers are interacting with, um, something that you, is absolutely critical in building the product itself is to incorporate product in product analytics. And there are absolute vendors that can help you put those things together. So you're collecting things like funnel data, how users are interacting with your, uh, your application. And then from there, you can gain some initial insights and this is a process that never really ends. Uh, you may be able to do something very simple from a personalization perspective, even like the one that I showed you earlier with, you know, I purchased uh, Adobe Acrobat product. Uh, so there are some tiers of the product that it's going to cost more that are sort of an upgrade. Maybe we'll start there and expose these upgrade options just to everyone who purchased product A. Right. That's yeah. actually not super sophisticated, and you can do that pretty easily. And then as you're able to collect more information when customers are using data, you can bring those additional features, uh, you know, potential additional methodologies of exposing, uh, sort of incorporating the data um, to drive a, a more robust personalization engine over time. Brilliant. A uh, really cool question from Brian here. Brian says, I know we've been talking about user personas, but have you used AI to create or enhance buyer personas? Is there a difference in technique there? Obviously, these your, your buyer personas aren't already in your apps. You can't gather this information from them in that way. Can we still utilize the technology to formulate and improve our buyer personas? Mm, that's a really good question. Yeah. Um, buyers sometimes are not users. Absolutely. This is often the case for, um, you know, businesses. They may have a decision maker that purchased a product, uh, but it's actually uh, the people on the team that are more frequently using your product and capabilities. So from that perspective, you're not going to be able to collect a lot of data points that that directly link back to the buyers, but know that Buyers are stakeholders, uh, sorry, the users are stakeholders that are directly tied to the buyers. So insights you collect on um, the, uh, the users themselves uh, does intricately link to the motivation and the decision-making criteria of the buyers. So you absolutely can influence the buyers through what you know about the users. Uh, there may be other more abstraction that can come uh, from more qualitative uh, information, but not something that you can kind of do from a personalization engine perspective. But uh, to kind of give you some examples, uh, there are many um, uh, product recently that have groups, uh, 
you know, significantly, uh, uh, like uh, very quickly over time, not because they target the buyers, but because they actually target the users first. Slack is a great example. A lot of their uh, sales strategy is to create a freemium uh, tier. And a lot of users just find it super convenient to use. And uh, teams within organizations just start using it um, kind of on their own. And then over time, like 50% of the organization is already using Slack in one way or another. Some opted in to pay for them. So the buyers are going to be influenced by the users in that case. Cool. Um, yeah. So that's kind of one way to think about that. Very cool. Awesome. Uh, great question from Evelina here. Uh, Evelina says, given the importance of keeping personas relevant and up to date, I was wondering how frequently we should revisit and update them. Also, are there any particular methods or approaches you'd recommend for the updating process? Now, I know as a user, there have been times when, you know, some uh, ad campaign is targeting me and it's not something I want to buy anymore. I wanted to buy it two years ago, but they have not updated <laughs> their algorithms or whatever. I like, how often do I buy a mattress? Really, guys, right? <laughs> so how often uh, should we jump in there and and update uh, the info that we have? Can we can we automate that in some way? Is there is there some way to say to the AI, hey, figure out how often a person buys this thing and maybe they don't need that anymore. Or can we, can we kind of hand that off to the uh, AI? Yeah. You touch on some pretty, pretty uh, kind of useful criteria to kind of think about this problem is it is going to be dependent on the outcome, dependent on the product and the purchase cycle uh, for the customers. Um, and uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier that model performance can degrade over time. So one way to kind of monitor and keep, keep in check is to keep track of the performance metric um, and, and see how effective they are at continuing predicting user behavior. And is it actually continued to drive the outcome you're looking for, or is that you know, percentage improvement decreasing over time? Those could be indicators that it might be worthwhile to revisit. Um, and other ways to kind of think about it is Business often see like major uh, technology innovations or, or sometimes shock in the system that affect customers' purchase behavior. Uh, if you have competitors come into the space or kind of a new tech that really changed the way customers interact with the product, those could all affect how uh, users think about buying your product, using your product, um, and you will be able to see user behavior change. Uh, both in terms of how customers are buying, uh, but also whether they're switching to a competitor. So if you're seeing some of these shock in the system and change in the system, it may also be worthwhile to think about what are some of the input variables that may affect that? Is that something you can collect from the users? Is that something you could incorporate into the model to improve the prediction uh, over time? Brilliant. Uh, David, here a question about the churn scores. A few questions about the churn scores. People seem to really like that idea. Here is one. Uh, would a customer who is not engaging with the product because they don't understand it and a customer not engaging because maybe we're not solving the right problem for them, would they have similarly high churn scores? And if that's the case, how do we know what action to take or whether any action can be taken at all in that instance? 
Yep, that's a fantastic question, um, and that that's 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 a a, a very important um, uh, kind of problem to to address when you work on a machine learning model. Is you're going to be able to get a score that's a composite of factors com- that come from various uh, user actions and behaviors. And oftentimes, the machine learning model is not going to say, you know, factor A is the one that's really making, um, you know, uh, that that's kind of pushing the level up for for this for the particular outcome. So one way to kind of dig into this a little bit further is to understand um, what are the potential levers that are that overarchingly impacting this churn score. And then once you identify a high churn score for, say, particular customers, are there certain attributes that could be highlighted um, that could be a potential explanation? So things like if you know a customer, so some of the attributes that I mentioned earlier could just be as simple as yes or no. You know, has the customer reach out to customer support? Uh, has the customer um, visited the cancellation page, right? So when those customers, you know, are yes along those variables and have a high churn score, you potentially want to personalize your uh, targeted um, uh, kind of your, your your messaging a little bit differently than someone who has those particular variables as no, because they haven't visited the cancellation page, they haven't contacted customer support. Those are potentially ways for you to kind of glean as proxies whether they're struggling with the product or they may be you know, think, potentially thinking about, um, uh, sorry, whether they're struggling using the product or they may be churning from other reasons such as it's too expensive uh, or that there's actually a better product that's better suited for them. Uh, it's, it's, this is, um, there's a little bit of art and science involved in this as well because a model is never going to give you all the answers. So sometimes you need to try a few different tactics before you get it right. There it is. Good. Um, I want to take this chance to talk to our B2B crowd. We've got the B2C folks and we've got the B2B folks. We don't want to leave them out. So Gaurav asks, can you share an end-to-end example in a B2B context where we could use this technology? Put you on the spot, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities across B2B and B2C. The key in terms of driving personalization is really understand, um, like if if you have product that both serve B2B and B2C, then you want to have specific segmentations for those two types of customers. There will likely be unique outcomes that B2C customers uh, want that is uh, not significant for B2B. And there may be some that overlaps the two. If you only have B2B customers, then the important thing is really to define early on what are some of the outcomes that you're trying to drive. And a great place to start is actually just look at some existing data analytic you have on customers, right? What are the areas that you're seeing uh, underperformance? What are some friction points that exist for your customer? Come up with a hypothesis of what that might be and then see what are some opportunities that you can address that through personalization or other potential models that can uh, solve the issue. You know, it's not the case that every problem can be solved with machine learning models or personalization. Sometimes it's about understanding specific feature sets, whether that actually solve the customer's pain point. 
In that case, it's about, hey, how can I refine that feature set so they actually do the job it does? But I think overall, the, the, the workflow in terms of solving B2C and B2B isn't too drastically different. Okay, good, good, good. Um, I want to I wanna give you a chance to talk about some of the things that can go wrong here. We've got bias, we've got manipulation, these sorts of things that can go wrong. I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I know things can go horribly wrong when we're trying to invent a, a human intelligence uh, parallel, right? <laughs> what have you seen that you would warn us against? How do we avoid it? One that I, I think of, you were mentioning Duolingo, right? It does an incredible job of reaching out to me when I'm not practicing. I feel like it uses manipulation <laughs> and I don't appreciate that. Uh, uh, how can we, how can we ensure that our, our uh, AIs are utilizing things like empathy instead of manipulation or uh, what other things have you seen that we need to avoid and be cautious of like bias and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is, there's no one golden rule to kind of address pitfalls when it comes to, you know, mitigating some downsides of machine learning, uh, personalization outcomes. I think there will always be customers that appreciate personalization, and then there's those that want to run away. So first and foremost, you want to give, you know, depending on the type of personalization and the degree that you're providing, uh, you may want to provide the option for people to turn it off completely. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's always something to think about when you're designing some solutions that can help but leave, leave room for people to say, no, I don't really want this. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, se second is uh, you know, work closely with your uh, counterparts um, that also share your goal and uh, may have additional sets of eyes uh, because it's really hard for any one of us to come up with all potential scenarios of downsides. So involving more people that are aligned with the objective uh, that have ideas put that can put themselves in the shoes of the customers. Um, and then even better, talk to customers themselves. You know, is this something we do that will help you, make you feel like it's saving you time, making things more convenient, or is this scaring you off? Those could be early indicators to help you decide if you want to move forward or design it in a way that is not as intrusive, um, that still keep the overall customer experience centered uh, without being too creepy. <laughs> um, those are things that, you know, it's actually a little bit more art than science. Um, so it involves you talking with more people because not, no one person can really understand uh, all possible uh, outcomes. And we need to talk to others too, to kind of identify those pitfalls. Oh my goodness. David, I am really sad right now. Uh, because we are approaching our time and I know all these folks need to get back to their jobs, but I love talking to an expert in this field. This is so fascinating. Um, it, it is the future and I just want to sit here and gab with you all day. I won't for your benefit. I won't do that because we had so many questions we couldn't get to. Where can folks reach out to you if they would like to contact you and ask some more questions, David? Yes. So... I have my LinkedIn uh, URL here. Feel free to uh, you know go on LinkedIn and, and at me. I'm not a big social media person, so you're not going to find me on Twitter or or X, as they call it now, uh, or other places. So this is a great place to reach out to me. Feel free to connect me. Uh, drop me a note. Say hey, uh, watch a webinar. Got some got some more questions. You know, love to hear your thoughts. 
I would love to you know add all of you as well and kind of respond that way. So, yeah. Brilliant. Folks, be sure to join us for the next In Our Product Chat series. That happens November 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to welcome pricing leader Michael Jordan of Qualtrics for a conversation on analytics and strategies for informing key pricing decisions. Don't miss that one. And now, David, it is that sad time of parting. I must bid you adieu. My friend, you have made us all smarter for having been here with you today. Thank you so much for uh, not just answering our questions, but giving us more questions to think about. I loved it today. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie. And thanks, everyone, for joining. Really appreciate it. Fantastic, gang. Have a great rest of your week. We will see you again next time.